I said, my name is Will, and it's a blessing to have you here with us this morning. And uh, this morning, we are continuing our series in 1 Peter entitled Living Hope, Living Hope. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter, and we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And if you're new to the whole Bible thing, turn all the way to the end of the Bible where the maps are, and then go left, and then you will hit 1 Peter, okay? You'll have Revelation, then John, the John letters, and then you'll hit... First Peter. So First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Now, this morning, we are going to be discussing and addressing the subject of suffering, the subject of suffering, okay? Now, the reason why we are going to be addressing the subject of suffering this morning is because for those of you who've been, at, been here in Tri-Village for the past few weeks, you know that we as a church, Wheaton Bible Church in general, Tri-Village in particular, we have been going through a time of very intense suffering. It all began a, a few weeks ago when we announced that Pastor Lon had stage three liver cancer, right? And then a couple weeks, uh, last week, I made the announcement that Pastor Rob had prostate cancer and uh, Pastor Rob Boo, the senior pastor of Wheaton Bible Church. And just an, an update on that, he got surgery, he had the prostate removed, and according to doctors, he is cancer-free now. So praise the Lord for that. Amen, right? So it all started right around there, right, in late November when they got the announcements, and then, and then we made the announcement here at Chai Village. But here's what's been so interesting. It hasn't just been the leadership of Wheaton Bible Church that's been going through suffering. In the past month, in the past six, four to six weeks, uh, we had, we've had easily, easily about six people in our congregation lose someone close to them. Like, I, I have made six phone calls, minimum, that I, that I can think of just at the top of my head, that I've made to someone who lost a mom or a sibling or a spouse um, in, the, in the past six weeks here at Tri-Village. And so what we see is that for some reason or another, God has allowed for us to go through a, a season of intense suffering and pain. And so this week as I was preparing this message, at first I was, there's, there's, there was pretty much two ways you can preach the passage that we're looking at, verse 3 through verse 12. If you're looking at just verse 3 through 5, you can speak on the gospel and it could be a very general message. But as I was preparing this week and I was looking at the situation, not only studying the passage, but studying our congregation and what people were going through, it became evident to me that the only passage I can preach today was the one on suffering. Like there's only been a couple moments, a couple of Sundays in the, the year and a half that we've been here that I've stood up and I've known exactly what God wants me to say. Like every time as a pastor, you pray about it and you hope you're going to say what God wants you to say. But this morning, and I felt that way when we looked at condemnation a couple months ago. This morning, I got up and I knew exactly what the Lord needed me to say. I knew exactly what he needed me to say. And that's how I feel about this this morning. Actually, last night, I was telling my wife, I said, I was, I wasn't, I was under, I was under, just not feeling well. And I really felt like it was just, I was great all day. And then right when I started working on my sermon, I felt like I got, I got sick. And I really felt like it was a spiritual attack. Because I, I believe that that's how important the message is this morning. Not because of what I have to say, but because of what the passage has to say to us. And actually, it's funny. My wife told me, my wife's like, listen, since you're talking on suffering, you can't get yelly and screamy today. Like, you got to calm it down, pump the brakes. You got to pastor people. Don't get yelly and screamy. Calm down. Okay? So I got yelled at last night. And uh, that's how that works. So she yelled at me about not yelling. <laughs> and uh, so that's what we'll see how. I can't promise anything. I can't promise anything. Okay? So uh, that's why I believe that we, are, that we need to address the subject of suffering. Not only because the passage brings it up, but because I think our context, the situation that we find ourselves as a church, demands it as well. And so this morning what we're going to do is we are going to look at suffering under three headings. Okay? The first thing we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the reality of suffering. 
After we look at the reality, we're going to look at the paradox of suffering, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the promise for suffering, all right? So we're going to look at the reality of it, then we are going to look at the paradox of it, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the promise for it, okay? So let's begin by looking at the first truth, which is the reality of suffering. And to do that, I'm going to reread verses 3 through 6. You could put that up on the screen behind me. Here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then verse six is where we're gonna camp out. Look what he says in verse six. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may, have to had, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, right? So the first truth that we see here in verse 6 is we see the reality of suffering, the reality of suffering. See, the way Peter writes verse 6, here's what he's telling us, that we as Christians should never be surprised by suffering. Suffering is a reality that we are all going to experience. And half the battle is just admitting that. Half the battle with suffering is admitting that there's going to be suffering. Okay? In in the passage, he says, though now for a little while. And so a little while can be a day for us, it can be a week. But actually what he means there for a little while is he means your entire life here on earth. Because your entire life seems really long, but in light of eternity, it really is a little while. Okay? Okay? So when he says that we are going to experience suffering for a little while, he means from beginning to end, we are going to experience suffering on this planet. That's what he's talking to us about when he brings up a little while. And so what we see, the first truth that he needs us to understand is that suffering is a reality that every single one of us is going to experience. I want to read to you a verse from uh, Isaiah 43. Look what it says in Isaiah 43 verse 2. This is a very famous verse that a lot of people go to in times of suffering, but you can actually miss a very important part of it if you read to it through quickly, through it through too quickly. Look what he says in verse 2 of Isaiah 43. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, that's a very encouraging promise, right? But what I need you to see is the word when, Okay. He doesn't say if you pass through the waters. He doesn't say if you pass through rivers. He doesn't say if you walk through fire. The word is when. In other words, what what, what Isaiah is telling us is the same thing Peter is telling us. Suffering is not a maybe. Suffering is not an if. Suffering is a when. You are going to suffer. You You could go to the bank with that. You are going to suffer. I'll give you an example. If your family has five people in it, one of you is going to bury four people. That's fact. Suffering is going to happen. And I think we do ourselves a disservice. Listen, listen, suffering is already hard enough as it is. But when you don't expect it, it makes something that's already hard, harder. It's meant to be difficult, but you make it more difficult when you don't expect it. And when you act like, oh, I'm a Christian now, and so God's, God's going to just protect me, and I'm never going to go through anything. God doesn't promise you that. And a lot of people today, unfortunately, you are mad at a God that doesn't exist. You're mad at a God 
Because you believe God told you he wasn't going to put you through suffering, and nowhere in Scripture does God promise you that. If anything, God goes out of his way to tell you you are going to suffer. He makes it crystal clear for you and for me. Here's the thing. Later on, if you go back to the passage again that we've been looking at, later on, Peter, he compares suffering to a furnace. And here's what, so I think why this is such, I think such an amazing uh, illustration, such an amazing picture of, of suffering. Because a furnace can either purify you or burn you to a crisp. The same furnace can either purify you or it can burn you to a crisp. That's why you can have two Christians or two people go through the exact same suffering, whether it's cancer or divorce or bankruptcy or, or depression, they could go through the exact same event. And on, on, the, on the back end of it, one person comes out softer, wiser, godlier, more compassionate, more loving, more like Jesus. And the other person comes out bitter, comes out angry, comes out cynical, comes out just, just completely, completely spoiled through and through. And I think part of the reason, I think there are many reasons why people react to suffering different, but I think one of the biggest reasons is that the people who come out the right way are the people who knew this was part of God's plan, and the people who don't come out of it the right way are the people who didn't think that was part of God's plan, okay? You see, what makes suffering, suffering's already hard enough, but when you're going through suffering and you think that suffering is meaningless, you think that suffering has no purpose, it makes that suffering that much harder, Okay? Now, one of the things I don't like about what the NIV does here, it says, though now for a little while you may have had to. They actually make that really complicated because what it actually says in the Greek, it says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The phrase in the Greek literally is, if needed or if necessary. So here's why this is so important. God never puts you in an unnecessary suffering, in unnecessary suffering. See, part of what makes suffering so hard is that we don't know the purpose of it. We don't know the reason for it. And sometimes God tells us what the reason is, and sometimes God doesn't tell us the reason. But according to the Greek, according to this passage, there is always a reason. So if you're going through suffering right now, God might never tell you why you're going through it, but there is a reason why you're going through it. Because God only puts you through suffering if it's necessary. I don't know if that encourages you, but it encourages me. Because unnecessary suffering is the worst kind of suffering. And if you're not a believer, that's actually the only type of suffering you can go through. Unnecessary, purposeless suffering because you don't believe there's a sovereign God who put you in the middle of it. That's why the world avoids suffering at all costs. Suffering to us can be meaningful. Suffering to us can be a growing experience. But to someone who doesn't know God, it's purposeless. There's no point to it. Because only God puts us in furnace, in furnace it's, it's, it's a necessity. He does it out of necessity. So often when we get put in furnaces, one of the things that we believe, and like I brought this, early, brought this up earlier, a lot of us are mad at a God that doesn't exist. And I think it's C.S. Lewis who said, one of the things in his book on grief observed, he's talking about, it's a whole story about his wife and how he lost his wife. And what I love about that book is that he's very raw. He's, he's very raw about how angry he is at God in this situation, right, in that book, Grief Observed. And one of the things he says, he's like, he's like, you know, when I'm going through intense, intense suffering, he's like, I'm never, doubted to, I'm, never, I'm never tempted to doubt God exists, but I am, tempting, I am tempted to attribute to him negative attributes. See what he's saying there? So he's saying is, I'm never tempted to, to become an atheist as a result of my, of my suffering, but I am tempted to become a bad theologian. I am tempted to 
attribute things to God that aren't actually God's attributes. And so what a lot of us do when we go through furnaces is we see God, like in, in the Old Testament, there's this famous story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar, this evil, you know, Gentile, pagan king, he throws him in the furnace. And a lot of us, when we are in the furnace, we feel that God is like Nebuchadnezzar. Like he's in there, he puts us in there, and he just wants us to burn. And he's watching and he's enjoying it. But if this is true, that all suffering only happens to you if it's necessary, then God is not like Nebuchadnezzar. God is like a father with his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the clock, waiting for you to learn what you have to learn so he can get you out. Okay? That's why theology matters so much. What you believe about God has major implications when you go through suffering. Has major implications. You know, one of the things I learned this week that, that, was, that was really, that really encouraged me um, and, and as I wrestled with this concept of suffering is in Hebrews chapter 12, we have this section where, where it talks about God disciplining us. And it says that God disciplines us for our good and that he uses trials and suffering to discipline us. But here's what's really interesting about the word discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. The word discipline, it can mean to chastise, it can mean to punish, but, but one of the meanings, it, it, it actually can mean to train someone physically, like to train your body physically like a physical workout, okay? Now, here's, what this is, this, here's why this is important. Because one of the, one of the passages I, I came across this week, he, he uses illustration, I think it's so good. He said, when you go to the gym and you pay money for a trainer, the first thing a trainer does before they work you out is a trainer starts looking at you and they start figuring out which muscle is weakest in your body. A, training, a trainer, if, they, if they're doing their job, they don't make you work out the muscles you already have. They go after the places where you don't have muscle yet. And that's the area they go after. So, for example, I, um, in, the, in the previous service, we have a guy, uh, uh, him and his wife, Connie, his name's Mike. He's a fireman. And any of, you, any of you who know Mike, he's massive. Like, he is swole. Like, the guy, his bicep is bigger than my head, okay? And so for the last six months, I've been doing a lot of weightlifting. And so I went to him and I said, hey, I want you to help me figure out how I can be more efficient with my weightlifting. And so he's like, yeah, all right. He started coming up with a plan. And so he, in the next few weeks, he's coming over to my house and he's going to make a plan for me, right? And he's like, something tells me you're not working on your legs, though. He's like, are you working on your legs? I'm like, no. <laughs> and he's like, you got to work on your legs. I'm like, nah, bro, I'm not touching my legs. And he's like, you got to work on your legs. He's like, because that becomes, that's the foundation for your, the rest of your body. And he gave me all these reasons, right? Horrible reasons, but he told me I need to do it, okay? <laughs> but here's what's interesting. If Mike came and all he said, if all he did, if he looked at my workout routine and said, yeah, you're doing everything great, just keep doing what you're doing, he's not a good trainer. See, a good trainer sees where you're weak and then gives you workouts to develop the muscles that are weak in your life. And here's what's crazy. According to Scripture, because that's the word that's used in Hebrews, when God disciplines us, God is like a trainer who uses suffering and trials to develop the muscles in your life that haven't been developed yet. And, and just like a good trainer, like when the trainer's making you maybe bench press, he lets you bench press until you feel like you're going to die. And then right before you die, he takes the weights off. And that's what God does. God brings us into suffering, and he, he, he tells you, hey, you're going to get wet, but I'm not going to let you sink. Right? It's like this, buoyant, it's this buoyancy in our faith if we really have faith in Jesus. You know how when you see a buoy out in the middle of the ocean and a huge, massive wave comes out after it, and you're like, oh, that buoy's gone. There's no way that buoy's coming back from that. And all of a sudden, it like, just pops back up, and you're like, oh, there it is again. That's what our faith is like if we have the gospel. It's like a buoy. God doesn't say we're not going to get wet. He just says you're not going to sink. Right? 
And that's what it is. So when God shows up into your life, he's like the ultimate trainer who goes in and says, you need to be developed here, 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 and here. I was reading a book a few months ago, and the author was, the whole section was about growing spiritually. He's like, you can read, you can pray, you can fellowship. But he says, but if you really, really, really want to grow spiritually, you need to suffer. You know, what I've told people in the past is like spiritual growth, Bible reading, prayer, community, all those things are great. But spiritual growth and using those things, it's like driving through city traffic. Like you're moving, but there's a lot of stop and go. There's red lights, you know, there's, there's accidents and stuff like that. When suffering shows up, it's like getting on the expressway. It's like getting on the autobahn. And all of a sudden, your spiritual growth is at another level. So he says, if you really want to grow spiritually, you need suffering, but no one wants that. So let's just settle with what we have, right? the Bible reading, the prayer, and the fellowship. But spiritual uh, uh, suffering, it grows you like nothing else. And that's why my hope with this message is that you and I would become good stewards of our suffering. We've never looked at suffering as something that needs to be stewarded. But I think it should be. I think that we need to look at our suffering as an opportunity to grow thing in, in areas and learn things that we otherwise wouldn't have learned. Suffering is like a sponge that's filled with water. And some people get through that sponge and barely, through that season and barely squeeze it. And some people go through that season and they squeeze every single ounce of knowledge they can get from it. And those are the people who, on the other end, on the other side of it, end up wiser, more tender, more compassionate, more loving, more godly. The people who see suffering as something not to avoid, but something to steward. Okay? So, so the first thing we need to see is we need to see that suffering is a reality. And look at how John Calvin puts this. If you could put the Calvin quote up. John Calvin says, Whomever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of his fellowship ought to prepare themselves, listen to this, for a hard, toilsome, unquiet life crammed with very many and various kinds of evil. Actually, if you go back to the verse, in verse 6, he says, this is interesting, he says, though you may have had to suffer grief, in all kinds of trials. Let me unpack these words for you. The word grief there, it's not just like brief, you know, sadness or discouragement. It's not like, hey, I stubbed my toe, I'm sad. Like, it's intense sadness. It is deep sorrow. It is overwhelming uh, uh, distress, mental distress and physical distress and spiritual distress. That's what the word grief there. It means, a, is, in, in, in Greek, it means this heaviness that comes on you. So this is not like everyday sadness. This is not like, oh, I'm bummed today. I, gotta, you know, I, I, gotta, uh, 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 I don't have enough money for my coffee or I, I spilled something. Or, no, no, this is, this is intense sadness, intense grief, intense sorrow that he's describing there. And then he says uh, it's to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That phrase, all kinds, literally in Greek, it means multicolored. We will experience multi, uh, multi, multiple colors of, of grief and of suffering. So it's like, it's, like, it's like grief and suffering is like this palette of colors, and we're going to experience all the colors of the rainbow in our life. You're going to have a gray Tuesday, you're going to have a blue Monday, and you're going to experience all the colors. And sometimes it's going to be small suffering, and sometimes it's going to be big suffering, but all, we're going to experience all kinds of trials. All kinds. That's a promise. That's a promise. Okay? And so we, as Christians, if you're sitting here today and you know God, if you're sitting here today and you don't know God, I pray that this would be the way that which you come to know God, that you see that, that you can actually have purpose in your suffering. You can actually get something out of your suffering if you know God. But if you're sitting here and you know God, we have to understand 
And we have to accept the reality of suffering. Okay? So that's the first truth. First truth we see here is we see the reality of suffering. The second truth we see here is we see the paradox of suffering. Now here's what's interesting about the paradox that we're about to look at. The only worldview that can give you this paradox is Christianity. There's no religion, there's no idealism, there's there's no movement that can give you the paradox that we're about to look at outside of Christianity. Look what it says again in verse six. I'm gonna reread verse six again. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And you're like, we just looked at this passage. Yeah, but we missed something here. here, Here's what we missed. What you see is in verse 6, there is this amazing paradox that only Christianity can give you. Okay? Here's why. Because in the same verse where we hear that we are going to suffer intense grief and sorrow and pain, he says, you will also greatly rejoice. Now, here's the thing, here's the thing, don't miss this. One of the things you can make the assumption of is, oh, 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 what he's saying is that there's times where I'm really rejoicing and there's times where I am in grief. No, 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 no. Because in the Greek, they're both in the present tense. So that means that as Christians, at the same exact time, we are greatly rejoicing and greatly grieving. Both at the same time. And remember, the word grief, it's not just everyday, normal, everyday sadness. It's intense sorrow, intense distress, intense sadness. That's what the word grief there is. But what's amazing is that the, that phrase, greatly rejoice, is just as strong in the Greek because the word to great, that's why the, the NIV has to put the word greatly before it because in the Greek, the word rejoice, it means to be fully overjoyed. It's like a cup that has been filled with something and it's overflowing. So it's not like you have a little bit of joy. It's that you are totally and completely filled with joy. That's what the word there, overjoyed, uh, greatly rejoice means. It means such joy that your body can't help but manifest it. It's joy that affects you not just mentally and spiritually, but it manifests itself physically. And so what's crazy about this, about this this, this Christianity, this gospel that we've been given, is that as Christians, on the one hand, we greatly rejoice, and on the other hand, we greatly grieve. And it happens both at the same time. And that is the paradox of Christianity. Christianity is the only worldview the only worldview that can allow you to rejoice and at the same time allow you to grieve. We do both at the same time. Now, the answer is how? How does that make any sense? Here's what I've noticed in my time with Jesus. When you become a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus, you simultaneously grow sadder and gladder at the same time. You grow sadder and happier all at the same time when you become a Christian. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more sadder you become. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more gladder you become. And both are true at the same time. Here's why, here's why. Listen, before you became a Christian, especially if you became to know the Lord later on in life, in college or after that, the longer, the longer when, when before you knew Jesus, there were certain things that never bothered you before. So for example, maybe before you came to know the Lord, no one else in your family was a Christian, but that didn't bother you because you weren't a Christian either. Now you have a prodigal child when before you had a normal child. There was nothing wrong with them before. And now you're worried about their destination. See? There was nothing wrong with you before. And now you realize there's everything wrong with you. You're a sinner. You're broken. You're wicked. So your, your sin makes you sad when before you didn't even think about it. Right? And, and, and that's the thing. So, so when you be, that's why I think when you look at Jesus, nobody cried and wept more than Jesus. 
He, he cried and wept because of his sinlessness, because of his, perf- his perfection. See, when he went to Lazarus' grave, he was weeping and wailing more than anybody there. I feel like Jesus' disciples had like just a, a box of tissues they brought with them everywhere they went because this dude was crying everywhere he went. Why? Because when you are really pure and when you are really holy, when you are be- becoming more and more Christ-like, the same things that break Jesus' heart break your heart. When before, they didn't matter. And so in a weird way, when you become a Christian, you actually become sadder than you were before, right? But on the other hand, you simultaneously, at the same exact time, you also become happier and gladder than you were before. And here's why, here's why. Later on, uh, or earlier on in this passage, he talks about that in the gospel, we have been given a living hope, a living hope, right? Now here's why, on the one hand, we become sadder, but on the other hand, we become gladder. Because when you place your faith in Jesus, and the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize that all the other hopes you have are not going to satisfy you, and the only hope that can satisfy you is your hope in Jesus. As a matter of fact, I was talking to an older gentleman as he walked out today, and he said, you know what? The only thing that breaks my heart is that like, me being older, I know that there's no hope other than Jesus. But he's like, it's not because I'm wiser or holier. It's because I've tried every other hope. And he's like, anyone under the age of 30 doesn't get what you're saying. Because they still think, they're still saying, oh, yeah, 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 sure, Jesus is my hope, but I still got money. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Jesus is my hope, but I still got my future spouse. Oh, yeah, sure, Jesus is my hope, but I still got, you know, fill in the blank, my potential or my education or whatever. He says, the thing that breaks my heart is that any millennial, he's like, any millennial in there doesn't really get what you're saying. He's like, in 20 years they will, but they don't get it yet. Because you're saying, like, yeah, I, oh, okay, okay, yeah, sure, will, sure, 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 sure. But here's the thing, if you're older here, it doesn't mean that you're better or holier. It just means that you've tried everything else. You had a chance to try everything else. That's the only difference between you and someone young, right? Tried it, it didn't work. That's why you're more likely to trust in that's why, that's why when I was a youth pastor, no matter how much I talked about suffering, my youth just wouldn't listen to me. And Steve Brown, who's a, who's a seminary professor in Florida, he, whenever his seminary per, uh, students ask stupid theological questions in order just to start an argument, he tells them, I can't answer that question because you haven't lived enough, sinned enough, or suffered enough yet. He's like, so come back in 10 years and then you won't have the question anymore. <laughs> so parents, as you deal with your children... Understand that they just haven't lived enough yet. They haven't sinned enough yet. They haven't suffered enough yet. And when they do, they will come back. And the hope, not only will it be, it, it's not, it's, it, it won't just be the, the, the glory of the gospel hope, but it will be the, the misery of all the other hopes that will force them to go to the gospel. Right? Yeah, I heard someone say this week that the foretaste of gospel hope is greater than the aftertaste of any other hope. Right? And so the reason why, on the one hand, we grow sadder, but on the other hand, we grow gladder and happier, is because this is so, this is uh, is why Christianity, like like no other religion and no other faith, it takes you to a level that no other faith can take you. Because think about it. I need you to follow my line of reasoning here. When you go through suffering, the reason why you're going through suffering is because there is a circumstance in your life that has changed. So everything was fine, you were happy, and then some circumstance in your life changed, and now you are suffering, right? But here's what's interesting about the word joy. If you go back to verse uh, 5 and 6, when he says greatly rejoice, the word there, joy, is almost always brought up in the context of the gospel. So he's not talking about just any joy. He's talking about a gospel joy. 
He's talking about a joy that exists regardless of your circumstances, okay? So here's why we can grow gladder and happier even when we're suffering, even in the middle of our suffering. Here's why. Because what, 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 since that joy isn't circumstantial joy, you see, the world only has circumstantial joy. That's the only joy that they have, right? As long as things are good, I'm happy. But the moment their circumstances changes, they have no more joy because their joy is in their circumstances. But if you're a Christian and the joy that you have is not circumstantial joy, it's salvific gospel joy, when your circumstances start to change, all they do is force you deeper into the gospel that you believed in to begin with. Does that make sense? That's why you can grow happier even when you're growing sadder. Because all the, all the suffering does is prove to you why you haven't placed your hope in these things to begin with. And it pushes you deeper into the gospel. That's why we can grow sadder on the one hand and, and, be, and, and be in deep, deep grief, but grow gladder and, and, and rejoice on the other hand because it's, it's pushing us into the very gospel that we knew we had to believe in in the first place. Look at this quote from uh, uh, Dr. Tim Keller. He, he unpacks how, why the world is, is, struggles with suffering so much. He says, the problem is that contemporary people think life is all about finding happiness. We decide what conditions will make us happy, and then we work to bring those conditions about. Then he says, to live for happiness means that you are trying to get something out of life. But when suffering comes along, it takes the conditions for happiness away, and so suffering destroys all your reason to keep living. See, for a non-Christian, like if, if, if there was, if, so I know there's non-Christians in here today, but let's say I went to a secular college to speak on this, and I told the non-Christian, you can rejoice and grieve at the same time. You can be glad and be sad at the same time. A non-Christian, actually, that's not true of them. They can't. Because since their joy comes from their circumstances, when their circumstances change, someone dies, someone gets divorced, the money, you go bankrupt, when, when, when you get a diagnosis, because their joy is in their circumstances, when their circumstances are, are changed, so is their joy. Since that's where their hope is, when their circumstances change, they are left hopeless. So a non-Christian would be like, this is, this, is, this is all lies. There's no way you can rejoice and grieve at the same time. Yeah, you can if you don't have Jesus. But if you have the gospel and the joy that you have is, is a salvific joy, is a gospel joy, then your changing of circumstances, all that does is push you deeper into Jesus. That's all it does. Right? And look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, he, he, he talks about this. C.S. Lewis, and I, I brought this up earlier, but in his book, um, 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 A Grief Observed, when he, his wife passes away, look what he writes about, about trusting God and his suffering. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. Then he says, but suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? So I can trust a rope to, to, to give someone, a, you know, to put a bow on a present, right? But do I trust in that rope enough to hold on to that rope when I'm over a precipice, when I'm over a, a gaping hole? See, if, you, if your faith can't, is not, it doesn't get you through suffering, then you do not have a gospel faith. You have a faith, you have a hope, but it's not in Jesus. And that's why we as Christians can rejoice even as we're grieving. Because as we grieve, as our circumstances are being devastated, we are forced to hold on to the rope that we claim to believe in in the first place. 
So I grow in joy even when I am suffering because the suffering is forcing me to go deeper into the message that gave me joy in the first place. I heard someone say this before. Maybe you guys have heard this quote before, but you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Everyone will say, oh, Jesus is all I need. Yeah, well, everyone can say that when you have money in the bank and everyone's healthy. But you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. When that's the only rope you can grab onto. That's why suffering does something to you that nothing else can do. And that's why suffering, if handled correctly, can grow you like nothing else can grow you. And that's why we need to think about how can we be better stewards of our suffering? Instead of just avoiding our suffering, instead of just becoming numb during our suffering, how can we become stewards of our suffering so that that rope that we grab onto during our suffering is the rope that we stay holding onto even when the suffering stops? See? And so back to that thing I said about older and younger people. Older people here, it's not that you're more godly or better than the younger people. It's just that you've tried to hold on to every other rope, and every other rope has let you down. And so you're holding on to Jesus now because you tried everything else. And your kids aren't holding on to Jesus because they haven't tried everything else yet. But they will. Right? And so that's why this is so important. And so if you're sitting here today and you're going through suffering, God doesn't want you to turn your feelings off. God wants you to cry. God wants you to yell. God wants you to wrestle with him. You know why I know that? Because both Job and Jesus in their suffering were very expressive, very loud, very out there. With like, Job ripped his clothes off and put ashes all over his body. And in the passage it says, he mourned, yet he did not sin. So, so listen, listen, don't miss this, guys. Christian suffering is not the absence of feelings. God wants you to, show, to express your feelings. Christian suffering is not the absence of feelings. Christian suffering is the absence of hopelessness. Okay? That's what makes Christian suffering different. It's not the absence of feelings. It's the absence of hopelessness. Okay? So, let's go back to the three points. We've seen the reality of suffering. We've seen the paradox of suffering. And I want to conclude by looking at the promise for suffering. Let me reread for you verse 3 through 5. Look what it says here. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept, for you, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? So what we see here in verses 3 through 5 is we see that God makes us a promise for our suffering. So we've looked at the reality of it. We've looked at the paradox of it. But the amazing thing about this passage is that in the very same passage that we're looking at, God gives us a promise that will get us through the suffering. So God's not only in, us, in the suffering with us, but he gives us a promise to get us through the suffering. Now, if you, go to, if you look at verse 6, this is, you can easily read passages if you're not paying attention. In verse 6 it says, In all this you greatly rejoice. See, well, well, we could read right past that phrase and not pay attention. And what you could think it says, you could think it starts right when it says, you, you greatly rejoice, right? But that's not what he says. He says, the reason why we should greatly rejoice is because there is, there's all this. What's this? What's he talking about? What can he possibly be talking about? Because if you're going through suffering right now, you, you want to know. 
What's the this that will make me greatly rejoice? Because everything in me wants to not rejoice. Everything in me wants to grieve. Everything in me wants to yell why. Everything in me wants to get angry at God. So he's saying that he doesn't just say, hey, just rejoice. Either Christianity is not just about putting a brave face and acting like everything's fine. He's not saying, hey, just rejoice for the heck of it. No, no, no. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. So the question is, what is all this? What is he talking about? Why should we be rejoicing? The all this is the promise that I'm making reference to. And the promise that I'm making reference to is verses 3 through 5. In other words, the reason why you and I can go through the suffering of verses 6 through 9 is because we have the promise of verses 3 through 5. That's what he's making reference to. He doesn't say, hey, just rejoice greatly for no reason. He says, in all this, rejoice greatly. And what is this? The gospel. Verses 3 through 5. That's what we get in, the, in, in verses 3 5. We get the ultimate promise, which is the gospel promise. In all this, greatly rejoice. And here's what's interesting. In, 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 the, in the original language in Greek, that phrase, in all this, greatly rejoice, it's not an imperative. It's not a command. Because Peter and Paul, they use imperatives all the time. Like they tell you, I'm an apostle, so do what I say. It's not a command there. It's not a command. It's compulsory. In other words, he's saying, if you really understand verses 3 through 5, I don't have to command you to rejoice. You will rejoice. And if you're not rejoicing, it's because you really didn't understand verses 3 through 5. So it's not a command. It's, it will be a compulsion if you really get it. It will happen naturally. It will overflow out of you if you really get what it says in verses 3 through 5. So what he's saying is, is that the regardless of what you and I are going through, the reason why we can rejoice greatly is because the gospel is true whether you're broke or you're rich. The gospel is true whether you're married or divorced. The gospel is true whether you are an orphan or you're adopted. The gospel is true whether you have cancer or you're healthy. And so the reason why we can greatly rejoice is because our joy is found in something that's outside of our circumstances. And so I should always be able to greatly rejoice regardless of my circumstances if I really understand verses 3 through 5. If I really understand verses 3 through 5, I will rejoice in verses 6 through 9 because the gospel never changes. It never changes. And here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. The reason why the gospel is the ultimate hope for our suffering is because in the gospel, we have both a Savior who relates to us and a Savior who rescues us. So we have a Savior who deals with our emotional, personal, intellectual problems with suffering, but we also have a Savior who deals with our spiritual, cosmic problem with suffering. The reason why the gospel is the only hope for your suffering it's because in the gospel, you have a Savior who relates to you on the one hand and a Savior who rescues you on the other. Let me unpack this because this is so important. The most important thing I'll say this morning. In Jesus, okay, in Jesus, you have a Savior who relates to you. Why? Well, because if you look at verse 6, let me read verse 6 again. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The word grief there, remember what we said the word grief there? It means intense suffering. It means intense pain. It means deep sorrow. It means a weightiness and a heaviness. You know what's interesting about the word grief, though? It's the, it's the same Greek word is used in Matthew 26 when Jesus is in the garden. When the disciples went away from him, it says that he began to pray and he started to feel this horrible distress. He began to feel this horrible grief. The same exact Greek word. So in Jesus, you have a Savior who relates to you. You have a Savior who gets it. You have a Savior who not only did, does he experience the grief you experience, but he experienced, experienced it to such a higher degree that he was, ble he was sweating blood because of it. 
That's how intense it was. That's what you have in Jesus. So listen, if you're in the middle of your suffering right now and you are tempted to scream out why to God in the middle of your suffering, you have a Savior who also screamed out why to God in the middle of his suffering. You have a Savior who relates to you. You have a Savior who comes down and, and he understands you. He's with you. He gets it. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And now for some of you, I brought this up in the, second, in the, in the first service. For some of you, because you're going through, through, through suffering right now, this sermon is like an IV. Like you're just putting it straight into the, into the veins because you need this right now. For some of you, you might not be going through suffering. And so this sermon is like a, a snack that you put in your pocket for when you do go through suffering. Because you will go through suffering. It's either an IV or it's a snack. Okay? So, th- so we have a Savior who relates to us, but that's not even the best part. You know why? Because if all we had was a Savior who relates to us, then Jesus does for you what any human can do for you. Right? Because like, if you had cancer, for example, someone who had cancer can relate to you too. If all Jesus did was relate to you, then he's no different from any human being. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that we have a Savior who not only relates to us, but a Savior who rescues us. He rescues us. And here, here's how he rescues us. Here's what's so, so uh, 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 beautiful about this. Jesus, he grieved like we grieve, right? That's what the text says in Matthew 26. He grieved like we grieve, but his grief was different. His, his suffering was radically different from ours because in our suffering, in our grief, according to the passage, we can also greatly rejoice. When Jesus grieved, there was no reason for him to rejoice. Now he rejoices because of what happened as a result. But when he was in the middle of his grief, Jesus had no reason to rejoice. Another reason why it's different is because when Jesus at the cross screamed out why, when we scream out why in the middle of our furnace, we know God listens to us. When Jesus screamed out why in the middle of his furnace, God didn't listen to him. God abandoned him. He turned his back on him. And so the reason why our suffering is different from his suffering is because Jesus went through all those things alone so that when we go through it, we will have someone next to us. Listen, listen. The reason why we know Jesus is going to go into the furnace with us is because Jesus already went into the furnace for us. Let me say it again. The reason why we know that Jesus will be in the furnace with us, the personal the, uh, the furnace that you're going through right now, the reason why we know Jesus will be in the furnace with us is because Jesus already went into the greatest furnace for us. That's how we know. And so Jesus, when he grieved, there was no rejoicing. Jesus, when he screamed why, there was no response. Jesus, when he went into the furnace, he looked around and there was no one next to him. But we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that beautiful story in the Old Testament, it says that Nebuchadnezzar looked inside, and there wasn't three of them, there was four of them, and the fourth one looked like the son, like, looks like the son of man, it said. That's what it used in the, in, in, in the Hebrew. Like the son of man. One like the son of man. You know what Jesus called himself when he came on earth? The son of man. And so the reason why we know that Jesus will be with us in our suffering, the reason why we know Jesus will be with us in our furnace is because he went into the furnace for us. He will, be us, he will be with us in the smaller furnaces because he went in there for us in the greater furnace. See, later on, it talks about this hope that we have. It's an imperishable hope. It's an unspoiled hope. It's a beautiful hope. It's a living hope. 
You know why our hope is imperishable? Because Jesus became perishable. You know why our hope is undefiled? Because Jesus was defiled. You know why our hope is beautiful? Because Jesus became marred and naked on our behalf. And you know why our hope is living? Because Jesus died. That's what we have in the gospel. I was doing some reading this week, and I was blown away by this. I didn't even know this was true, but it said that back in the day during Jesus' time, one of the ways that a goldsmith knew that the gold was ready to be taken out of the furnace is he would look into the fire, and when he can see himself reflected in the gold, he knew it was time to take it out. Isn't that just like the gospel? Remember, God is not a tyrant. He's not Nebuchadnezzar. God, is, God is, has, has his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat, and he's watching you. And God takes you out of the furnace when he sees the glory of his son displayed on you and in your life. That's what God does for you and for me. And, you know, if you go back to, we'll leave it there at verse 6, but in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, he says that we've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Remember what I said that word means. The word there, all kinds, it means multicolored. Manifold trials, multicolored. There's only one other place in all of 1 Peter that Peter uses that word. In chapter 4, he uses that same word, multicolored, but he's not describing trials, he's describing the gospel. He talks about the manifold, multicolored gospel that we've been given in Jesus. So here's why this is so beautiful. That even though we have multicolored problems, God has given us a multicolored solution. So it doesn't matter what your suffering is, whether it's small or big or in between. You have multicolored problems, all kinds, but you have a multicolored gospel as well. And so I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what, what, what you're experiencing this morning, but I need you to know that in Jesus, you have a Savior who relates to you on the one hand and who rescues you on the other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.